Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. It's really delightful to be back. We're quite deep into this new season of podcasts. Everybody has a podcast and everybody's now doing seasons of podcasts. I was just reflecting that this is episode 439 or thereabouts, so I'm not sure how relevant seasons are to 439 podcasts. It just feels like one long season of Buddhist stories, voices, meeting really interesting people around the world who are trying to figure out what Buddhism means in contemporary life. So far, it's been a total joy, actually, to hear so many diverse voices and so many people who are thoughtful and excited and often joyful about their work as Buddhist practitioners. And we're going to meet some more of them today in a little minute when we talk about our forthcoming home retreat, Forces for Good, where we're going to be talking about challenging emotions as portals to liberation. First, I just want to welcome Kusla Devi, who's back on the podcast team. Hi, Kusla Devi. Lovely to have you with us. Hello, hi Chandradasa and everyone out there. Really glad actually to be part of this podcast recording in particular. I saw the theme and just thought that's going to be a really good retreat. I did a retreat, I think it must have been a couple of years ago now, an online retreat with Balajit and Singashri. And it was excellent in terms of this theme and working with it. A lot of those tools have really stayed with me, which I'm very grateful for. And I haven't been on retreat with Viveka yet, but a lot of my friends have and I hear really good things about that too. It's particularly nice to have you, Kusli Devi, because you're about to go off on a pretty long retreat yourself, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm going into the Spanish mountains for three months in April. Fantastic. To witness a group of women entering the Triatna Buddhist Order, which is the context for this conversation. We're all members of the Triatna Buddhist Order, and I'm very happy to welcome the team. I'm going to go in alphabetical order. That means I'm going to start by welcoming someone I don't think we've really had much conversation before, but it's really nice to meet you here. So welcome, Balajit. Yeah. It's funny, actually, Tandadasa, because I'm not surprised you didn't remember, but when I very first got involved in Buddhism about 25 years ago in Cambridge, I was only there for a year, and you were actually supporting my very earliest introductory classes. It was with Sinaketu and Matnadaka. And yeah, we were just by the River Cam. And I think my first night was on Bonfires Night. They had a big display just behind the scenes. I remember these explosions going on outside and it was a bit like the Dharma was exploding into my life as well. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad you reminded me of that. That's really lovely to to think back to all those years ago on the Midsummer Common, watching the fireworks go off. It's amazing, isn't it? You never know where you're going to meet people again. Here we are all these years later, floating in the ether. So welcome to you, Balajit. Next up, we have Singashree. Singashree is a sort of newer friend of mine. We formed a friendship, particularly last year, in strange circumstances, which I never tire of recalling. Anyway, it's lovely to have you, Singashree. And Singashree is the sort of origin point for this retreat, so it's particularly lovely to welcome you. Thank you, Chandradasa. Yes, our friendship was forged in quite a debacle. We had a car breakdown on us and ended up spending a night in a hotel room together, which was absolutely lovely, and going out for a very good pizza in uh, Western the best, Massachusetts. The best pizza. <laughs> I've forgotten the name of the pizza place. So if you're ever in West Springfield, Massachusetts, and you're in the mood for pizza, you have to go to the Red Rose. The Red Rose. This podcast has no advertising, but if it was sponsored, (laughs) it would probably be sponsored by the Red Rose Pizza. (laughs) If you're listening, (laughs) you can ring us in. Anyway, welcome, Singapore. Our third guest is someone who's been a very good friend to me for a long time and a very good friend to the Buddhist Centre Online and this podcast, Viveka, who's in San Francisco, California, and who's joining us not too early in the morning, but relatively early in the morning. Welcome, Viveka. Hello. Yeah. I like to, I'm in a practice of land acknowledgement, so I just want to also acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Ramatish Ohlone people. 
And just this weekend, we actually had a chance to talk to an activist who is working to end caste oppression, the Mori. And they were introducing the idea of caste acknowledgement at Buddhist centers, which was really interesting. So I wonder if we just practice that now, just acknowledging that Buddhism has its roots in disrupting a system of caste hierarchy, going back to its original founding. We could continue to work in that spirit. Johai, it's good to be here. Hmm. That's a nice way to set up a conversation about where tradition meets contemporary awareness. I suppose a new culture. We're developing a new Buddhist culture. I was at that event at the weekend. It was really fantastic, actually, to listen to the conversation that emerged. But for now, this conversation is about our forthcoming home retreat, which begins on April the 28th. We'll put the link in the show notes so you can go and check it out. There are quite a number of strands of origin for this retreat, but I thought I'd bring you in first, Singashri, because you and I have been talking for a while about doing something together online. We had an event with you earlier last year, and we'd been talking about a home retreat. And I was curious as to why you picked this particular theme. I'd imagine at this point you have a whole delightful basket of themes that you could bring out for a retreat like this. Why this one around forces for good, welcoming challenging emotions as portals to liberation? Yeah, thank you. I was actually just on the phone with a young woman who's a Dharma practitioner and also a somatics practitioner. And she had reached out to me for some coaching support. And we were talking about why she particularly felt drawn to me to support her. And one of the things that we were sort of articulating as we were talking was that for both of us, there's an interest in the intersection of Dharma, so the teachings of the Buddha, Somatics are embodiment practices, ways to drop more fully into our embodied experience and be able to open to the language of the body, the wisdom of the body, and then also social engagement. So very critical question, how do we show up for and engage with the world that we're living in? So I feel like this offering in a way is a coming together of those three things. It's like we're working at that intersection. I'm particularly pleased and very grateful that Balajit and Viveka both said yes to coming onto the team for this, because in my eyes, they're two of the most experienced teachers we have in the movement who are also working at this intersection. Yeah, thanks for inviting me into this thing, Shri. So I really appreciate your leadership in wanting to make this available to people. And I really resonate with that. I love that image of being curious about the intersection of these things. Now, I was a yes when you asked me, because my own experience of practicing in community with people is that, yeah, it's a time where there's a lot of pressure on people. This is the first time in my lifetime I've lived through a global pandemic. It's the first time in my life where such mass numbers in the United States showed up in a renewed multiracial response to the still unhealed residues of racism in our country and the mass protests on the street and all that's caused, you know, regardless of where a listener might stand on that issue. I hope you stand on the side of curiosity which has no sides. And it's also the climate trends going towards still heedlessness on the part of us and responding in an adequate way. So there's an incredible amount of pressure right now. In fact, I was just watching the excerpts of Asian American acceptance speeches from the Oscars last night, where the film Everything Everywhere All at Once just swept the Oscars, which I don't normally watch. But I I must say, I've I've been a little bit on the cheering side of seeing Asian representation stories in, in the media. And I was really struck by one of the directors saying that they, in making the film, they were really wondering about in the film how to respond to this world where everything is happening so fast, where it's a TikTok social media world with all these pressures, like the ones I've named. 
And they were hoping that this film was an offering to people to try to make sense in the midst of that, to find a, a path of the message being kindness and, and presence, that our presence is really required in this world. I was really deeply moved by that. And that also resonates for me in this retreat, you know, in this world of so much pressure. How can we actually stay embodied and come home to our body where we will find the greatest resourcing of what we need to actually be here and respond versus try to escape and flee and abandon each other in our world? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that central point there you mentioned towards the MFAQ about how to respond. You know, it's easy to respond, but without being conscious of how you're responding or what the quality is that you're bringing to experience. You know, what does it mean to respond with kindness? What does it mean to respond with compassion, both in terms of what arises in our own experience internally and also about how we respond to the world, really? I've just bought a poster of the Wheel of Life. And, you know, right at the hub, you have the three poisons traditionally depicted as three symbols. So we have the poison of greed. One way I see that as contracting and being thirsty for what we haven't got. So it's this kind of wanting or grasping. And then there's the poison of hatred, contracting, fighting against, pushing away what we have got in experience. So this tussling. And then there's ignorance. One of the translations of this is not knowing or an ignoring of experience. So there are three ways which we reject our moment-by-moment experience. And I think one thing for me about this retreat, which I imagine will be a core theme, is what does it mean to respond with kindness to moment-by-moment experience, particularly to a core part of us emotions, which we can so easily respond to from the basis of poison, like contract against them or not want them to be there or to want something differently. You know, and it seems to me the Buddha's saying that there's a different way here that's very powerful is actually learning sensitivity and openness and presence. So I think that's probably one of the things we'll be exploring together on the retreat. It's interesting hearing the nature of the invitation for this retreat. It's quite a strong invitation to come and meet the world and the world being as complex and difficult as it is. And also, I guess, to meet stuff that's at the heart of the wheel of life, that's at the heart of all of our struggle, craving, hatred, not knowing, not knowing what to do. Kusla David, what does it feel like to receive that invitation? I'm interested in the come and see aspect of this. Yeah, it's interesting, this invitation. I think it is quite challenging, that sense of sort of turning towards what's difficult. That's challenging. And at the same time, that is what I want to be able to do, because <laughs> I know when I don't do that, it doesn't help. I don't sort of get anywhere if I just push away these difficult emotions. And my experience has been that when I can find tools to turn towards and be with challenging emotions in myself and others, I do find that liberating and freeing. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge that, oh, come on, men, <laughs> come and do this. And at the same time, it's like, I don't know, practicing Buddhism, like what else would I want to do? You know, <laughs> that is what we're trying to do really, isn't it? I love that evocation, but it is basically the work. That's the work we're called to do. That's what we've said we will do. I know I don't always want to do it. <laughs> At least I don't always want to do it with all of me, but it's nice to be reminded actually that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what, that's what I committed to. Really with my friends, that's what feels most alive in this conversation. It's not that I've committed to in the abstract as a Buddhist. I've committed to it with my friends. I'd imagine that's alive for various folk. Yeah, and I noticed there's a tendency to yeah want to shy away from difficult content. 
I want to suggest that maybe all that working to evade what's actually happening is harder work (laughs) than actually developing what I would call the embodied competencies to live and inhabit our lives. So it's kind of a false choice, right? Like, oh, maybe I'll exert myself to learn these things, or maybe not. And, you know, there's such a thing as positive distraction. While the retreat is looking at stronger emotions, I would say that we need to resource ourselves with ease and we need to resource ourselves with delight and wonder. And these are also going to be things that we include in the retreat. So it's interesting when we think about just the world of emotions, we could ask our listeners, what comes up for you? And people would have very different responses. Probably some people generally may want to avoid that material, that content. Some people might have mixed responses. Some people might feel more resourced to to dive in, as it were. But I want to say that just being a human in our world, I would say the competency of being able to experience and respond creatively to emotions is going to make life better. I will actually take a risk of offering that guarantee of the course. (laughs) That's really interesting, Viveka, because I think my usual way of responding to difficult emotions is through habit so the habits of avoiding or whatever it is that i do to avoid or to distract and i was just thinking in that way habit feels like it's easy somehow (laughs) because it's known and yet it just doesn't sort of satisfy or it doesn't actually meet what i want it to meet in me if you see what i mean yeah so Viveka, when you started saying the way that we habitually respond Interestingly, I was reminded of something you've also reminded me of. And, you know, the years that I've been practicing with your support, which is the word integrity, to remember also that these parts that are familiar, like what you were saying, Kusadev, you know, these familiar parts that feel easier because they're known. There's also an opportunity in recognizing those parts to also feel into the integrity of those parts in terms of what they're trying to do, which is to keep us safe, to keep us happy, to make life easier. Something in that for me has been really, really revolutionary because it's like introducing a pause and an appreciation of the suffering. So somehow in recognizing the integrity of the part that wants to come in and fix it, there's an opportunity to also see like, oh, this is just a moment of suffering. And just pausing and appreciating the moment of suffering in and of itself creates space then for something else to happen. So that part that wants to fix it can be there. The part that also has a sense that maybe there's a different way to be with it can be there. You know, the opportunity to broaden my perspective. It's like a reminder for all those things. So that first truth, you know, the first noble truth, recognizing a moment of suffering somehow then allows for all of my practice to come to bear in that moment. And like, oh, yes, there are other things that we might be able to do here that are more creative, to use that language, reactive versus creative. Yeah, just following on from that, you know, the multifaceted nature of us as humans with these habits and tendencies is you get a situation where I feel angry and I also feel shame about being angry. And I also feel that I'm failing as a practitioner I can't articulate this in relationship with people. We get into these complex matrices. For me, this is mindfulness. It's being full of the moment. It's like the possibility that with kind of presence and openness, that we start to see the knots that we create so that we might feel upset about something, but then feel like with male conditioning, you know, I'm speaking personally here, I can't show that because somehow I'd be seen as failing or lacking, or I can't admit it to myself because it conflicts with my own self-view. And there's something for me about the potential of mindfulness here is that if we can learn to trust what is happening in our moment-by-moment experience of the body and learn to trust awareness, 
that the inner conflict starts to have more space to move and unravel and the energy to come out of it in a way. It just really comes back to me partly just for mindfulness here, you know, that core teaching. Maybe I could just add, you know, what what do we mean by the body? You know, because we can use that term in, in everyday language. It's very easy to think that we kind of know what the body is. We learn it, discover it, study it in school, in biology. It's a thing that has organs and has blood, which is all true. And from a Buddhist perspective, it's one level. And there's many more dimensions of the body that we can open up to in practice. So we'll be doing some lead experiential exploration through sitting to bring awareness to what it is we label the body, particularly the energetic dimension of the body and the emotional body you know the body is where we experience emotions from a buddhist point of view there's also the body of truth which is a a dimension of the body where we experience pure qualities these kinds of dimensions may not be ones we learn at school (laughs) yeah what is the body for us in our actual experience yeah in some of the early buddhist teaching about mindfulness you know the buddha talks about being aware of the body thoughts emotions, and how they are actually all conditioning each other too. So it's not just one thing happening at any time. You know, this multi-layered experience of being human. The encouragement is to learn how to be mindful with that and actually understand the conditioning and liberate it. So as you were speaking, we're talking about this one person who may have been conditioned around feelings in the body, around emotions, right? There's gender conditioning, there's class conditioning, there's racial conditioning about what's allowable, what's not allowable. If we think about that, there's also the Buddha in these early texts talked about being aware of this complex unfolding inside, internally and externally, which is also really intriguing for this. So also I'm experiencing other people's embodiment. It's not just... There's one emotional stream happening over here. And then the thoughts that come from that and the different contraction or steadiness or even curiosity with that, you know, it could be possible. So it feels quite important to me to get curious about and get more skilled in how we navigate this human condition. Because it's not just what's happening with me. It's actually happening in a room, in a region, in a society, in an internet space. It really relates to the kind of world we want to have in relating with each other and in each other's embodiment. It just seems of utmost importance that we learn to be more skillful and actually evolve from the conditioning that we have right now. I feel that as a responsibility of being in the arc of human generations to do that work now. And it also relates to the embodiment of the earth. So I just want to say that the other external embodiment is the natural world of which we are a part. I'm very intrigued and taken by this ethical idea that I can't really harm the earth if I'm really embodied, because then the consequences, the flavor of these actions will be much more obvious to me. And actually, the desire to be kind, to heal, will actually be the most obvious path to take if I'm really present in here. It's really good to hear you say that, Viveka. One thing I I was thinking about in the run-up to this podcast, Balajit, you sent me an updated little bio of yourself. And I was really struck in it because you mentioned your work as a trauma therapist, which when people hear about something like trauma therapy, I guess they probably relate to it's quite a personal, very intimate space. But you evoked in it the conversation between that sort of level of personal experience and the idea from the Buddhist tradition that, you know, we we want everyone to wake up, like we, we want the world to wake up, what you were just evoking there, Vivek, about the earth itself and 
our practice happening inside a culture, inside a set of conditions all the time. And I was really curious as to that interplay between the retreat description evokes, again, quite a sort of strong engagement with our inner world of emotion. But it seems quite clear listening to all of you that the direction is outwards and that there's a relationship between an outward facing perspective and something that helps heal internally. Yeah. So, you know, like what Vivek has said about how we're so co-conditioned by each other and the environment. As Vivekha was talking there, I was feeling myself being co-conditioned and influenced by what, what she was saying. And as you were talking now, similar with you, Tandradasha, but I think it's very exciting what's happening in the understanding of our nervous system, the new science that's emerging now. One of the things is it seems to be getting more and more clear that we have this nervous system architecture that can easily trigger us into modes of protection. So the fight, flight and freeze is really heavily conditioning the physiology of our body and therefore our thoughts and emotions towards protection, personal protection or safety. So in my work as a trauma therapist, one of the core things I'm trying to do is to develop a chemistry of relationship with someone where they start to feel more safe. And then as they start to feel more safe, there's literally physiological changes can start happening. You know, the heart rate can slow down, the breathing becomes smoother, and people start to become more present. And then the connection part of our inheritance, the benefits of a regulated nervous system, when all the parts of ourselves are online and open to become available. I really resonated with what Rebecca said, because it's like, then what naturally comes, from my experience, is a desire for connection with others, connection with self, and then through that, a natural sensitivity to the environment. We feel and see and respect and honour the environment, the physical environment, naturally want to take care of that. So for me, the personal healing, moving out of states of protection and disconnection into connection and safety is all very much bound together. But the Buddhist tradition gives us fantastic tools to start that healing journey, really. Yeah. So I was just sat here also feeling really affected and connected with you all. And I thought, oh, it's amazing that we can do that online. So I wondered, you know, for people who are looking at the blurb of the retreat and wondering with these themes of working with challenging emotions and what you've just said, Balajit, about that sense of safety, connection with one another and with the world. Do you think that works online and how might you make that work for this particular retreat? Yeah, you know, it's an online retreat, which has its own kind of dynamic, I guess, because you'll be in whatever environment you're in and coming to join us you know, virtually. Yeah, I just encourage you to imagine how best you can make that work for yourself. You might look at your calendar or give an away message in your email and let folks know that there's certain time blocks that you're not going to be available. You might think about how to have a quiet evening, for example, and just, you know, what would it be like to be on retreat? And we also understand that there's life. So we will be recording sessions so people can catch up on things that you may not be able to attend live. Also, we're going to be coming in from different time zones. We have heard that on past online retreats, people have woken up at incredible hours to attend. So I'm not going to limit what you might want to do. But in case you're like me and sleep helps you weather the ups and downs of life, you might listen to a recording of some parts of this, depending on where you are. But just know you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Valjit and I actually just wrapped up a six-month online course that we were running. And we were online once a month for a whole day with folks. Part of the feedback was that people were really surprised at how quickly 
and fully we were able to connect even in an online environment. And I think that is due to some things that we do consciously bring in, particularly at the beginning of the retreat to help to ground the whole group in well, literally in the ground, <laughs> and then also in their connection with themselves. Like, why are they even in the space? What's drawn them to come on this particular event? What's that thread of inspiration or intention that's led to being here? And not just what is it, but appreciating that. Just celebrating, even like you've pressed go on the Zoom link, you know, you, you've arrived. Well done. You're, you're honoring that part of you that wants to wake up. And then grounding in connections with each other. So really appreciating that particularly if a group is very diverse, you know, you've got people coming from all over the world, you've got people coming, lots of different conditioning, gender conditioning, socioeconomic, racial conditioning, as we've already named all sorts of other different kinds of conditioning. I've been in online environments where you've got almost every generation represented. So we do that through meditations that support that. So probably very early on in the retreat, maybe even the very first thing we do is laying down, doing a body scan, really connecting with the earth, connecting with those sensations of stillness and spaciousness, uh, safety that can come from that very simple act of sort of surrendering the weight of the body to gravity um, and feeling that connection with the ground. And then we do explicitly talk about what we each need to be able to be together in a community of practice where we might be exploring quite tender things. And we will use a tool called community agreements for that. And we'll be inviting people to also name for themselves uh, what they might need and to just explore those agreements and how, what they actually look like in practice. One example might be uh, one of my favorite ones, which is called Move Up, Move Back, where we just check in with how am I usually in groups? Am I someone who tends to lean in and share a lot and get really energized and excited? Or am I someone who tends to sort of rest back, let it all wash over me and not necessarily bring myself in? And we just encourage people to not just notice how they're showing up in the space and whether or not they might challenge themselves to bring themselves in more or rest back if they're someone who tends to speak more, but also notice the effect that has on the group. So if you're someone who tends to come in a lot, once you rest back and leave space, what happens? And, and really appreciating that, oh, other people say things. And actually, they say really good things that maybe they wouldn't have said if there wasn't the space to say it. So there's a real learning in that one. And there's a whole list of them that we'll, we'll go through and also invite people to add to. One thing is for people who come, just know that we trust you. And we are also deeply welcoming of you, whatever it is that you're bringing, why you are wanting to come, even if you're not sure you'll be able to go to the depth and pace that is right for you. You know, you're not going to be forced anywhere. It's a really important principle is trusting someone to know what's the right pace and depth for them. And especially around heart work, especially in a lot of Buddhist settings, maybe there's an ideal that having an open heart is the right way to be. I just like to encourage people to know it's not external expectation of how you should be. And we're not trying to open the heart with a crowbar. That's what I like to say is we're not trying to open the heart with a crowbar. So we're looking for the process itself to embody what we're looking for, which is a kind, curious, growthful approach to what it is like to be a human being with emotions. Thank you for that, because it reminded me of something I often practice and invite others to do, which is to practice being in the space with grace. Not necessarily gracefully, but with grace, meaning giving ourselves the permission to do whatever we need to do to take care of ourselves and each other. Even if it's something really simple, like grabbing that cup of tea you left on the kitchen counter or grabbing a blanket or closing the blind. So there's a lot of emphasis on permission giving and taking care, taking deep care of ourselves in the space and doing what we need to do so that we can show up fully for ourselves and others, but not in a forceful way. 
want to recognize that for some of us, particularly depending on our learning styles and also how we're neurologically wired, it can be helpful to know what's happening. <laughs> we will definitely have moments of input from the three of us where we're just sharing our reflections on the theme, giving some dharmic input. There'll be an opportunity to practice together. So we'll be guiding various meditation practices, maybe some exercises. We'll be doing some somatic exercises as well. So ways of inviting the body in beyond just sitting meditation practice. There'll be opportunities to go into groups to reflect. So we'll probably do a bit of individual reflection and then going into groups to share what's emerging out of those individual reflections. And those groups are optional. So sometimes we may just feel that we want to reflect on our own rather than sharing with others. So that would be an optional thing. I really love you talking about somatics, which might be a new word for people. It reminds me of the Again, in the early Buddhist tradition, talking about whether sitting, standing, lying down, walking, really being mindful and aware of what's unfolding in our experience. So we could add while chanting or other things. So there'll be <laughs> ritual practices that you don't have to be a Buddhist to do, but we will explain and yeah, that just draw from the wisdom. There's actually quite a deep and long wisdom technology, you could say wisdom tradition of working in the body and working with sound, for example, sound healing, working with energy. One thing we haven't said explicitly yet is energy is part of the exploration. Emotion, we could say, could be experienced as energy, and that'll be a big part of getting curious about energy. So Balajit, with all this talking about difficult emotions, it's occurring to me that somebody might be like, I've got enough difficult emotions. I don't know if I want to spend a whole week on a retreat, you know, grinding down into them. And I just wonder, I know you're really good at resourcing, talking about resourcing for that. So could you share a little bit about what we will be doing in that way? Yeah, well, I think this is really important, Viveka, because, you know, it's easy for us to get overwhelmed with difficult emotions. What is it in our lives? What is it that can help or nourish or support our system as we navigate through the difficulties and challenges of life. Just one very simple example maybe I could give, and there's quite a lot of research around this at the moment, is what's called orienting. And it's just a very, very simple practice. So, you know, we have this mammalian nervous system that's constantly scanning for threat. It's called neuroception. It's scanning all of our senses moment by moment for what could be threatening. And there's just one very simple resourcing thing that we'll be introducing on the retreat is just inviting us to take some time to just slowly allow ourselves to experience the environment we're in, looking around and experiencing the environment. And just that can help us kind of move away from that more sort of survival, fight, flight, freeze, contracted physiology and help us open, process, embody, integrate, hold more difficult emotions. So they'll be orienting and other aspects and resourcing techniques we'll be bringing in. Actually, in the Buddhist tradition, there are different ways of working with emotion. I find that the array of approaches more interesting than any one approach by itself. And there are some approaches that invite more calm which could be very helpful. If we're feeling overwhelmed, how can we find stability? And rather than being in a situation where emotion's happening, but there's no awareness or creativity in it, and it actually may be harmful to ourselves or others, you know, there are approaches that help us to just find calm in that. So you're more like in a medicinal metaphor, applying an antidotes to it. And there's another set of practices which or approaches which actually really invite us to rather than try to do something to the emotion, 
It's almost like, you know, the storm watchers that go right into the storm. You always wonder about these weather people that get dispatched to go right to the heart of the storm. <laughs> yeah. And there are approaches in Buddhism that are like dispatching us right to the heart of the storm. There's training. It's actually incremental training you know, to be able to, to work effectively in that way as well, which is actually engaging in the energy more directly versus trying to calm the energy. And I would say that both approaches are very important. And I actually want to put an encouragement about the latter methods because actually through my training more recently, so I was recently trained as a somatic coach, partly to be able to respond better to what's happening in our world. How do we as embodied people respond to the pressures of the world? And when intense things are happening, calm is not the only useful response. Yeah. Actually, because our emotions are a form of communication, sometimes other qualities of emotion are incredibly useful. For example, making an impassioned plea for empathy for, let's say, a community that the world has seemingly forgotten, which is under great duress, let's say. Making an impassioned, impassionate plea may be an incredibly effective thing to do. Anger can be important you know, if harm is about to be done or is being done to set a boundary. Yeah. So if you're just told, oh, you're being angry, you're being unskillful, that's actually not really, I hope, (laughs) as really appropriate or skillful as we could be in the world. And at times that could be unskillful as a response. And what I've noticed in my life with Buddhists, I actually am called on a lot in conflict resolution processes. And a habit I can see with Buddhists is that a tendency to not be able to engage with stronger emotions and understand why someone might be so upset really actually is a block to empathy and greater understanding. So if we tend to come in with an idea that strong emotion is wrong and really what will get us through this is for us all to calm down, on one hand, it could be true. If people need to take a break, could be true, but not really in the deeper transformation. As a momentary kind of thing to offer people some calm, yes, Or, you know, like, let's come back to this conversation later. But the real resolution in terms of something transformational lies in the life of that emotion. Why does someone care so much? It's in the empathy of that that actually wisdom emerges. And often wisdom and emotion are almost polarized. In order to be wise, you must flatten all emotions. I really feel that's really quite important for Buddhists specifically. And the danger is to actually ignore all that emotional life and to deaden ourselves. One of my responses to that, Veka, is it can be hard to know what to do with strong emotion, can't it? I know from myself that I can go one way into just pushing down the anger, making it wrong, making it bad, pretending it's not there. But I know when I do that, I get kind of cut off from myself more broadly. So I, I start to feel numb and disconnected from myself, never mind other people, and it doesn't lead to good behavior. And then at the other level with anger, it can be like, petrol and I can get lost in it and maybe act out or lash out in ways that I regret you know and other people find painful so that doesn't seem a good way either there's something for me about what is the middle ground here given that we're human we will have these responses of anger and grief and so on more difficult emotions so how can I develop the tolerance feel the energy of that and be in relation to it myself and in the world in a way that doesn't deny the emotion, but it also doesn't get lost in it. For me, I find this really fascinating because from a nervous system point of view, when strong emotion is suppressed, it tends to lead to either a lot of anxiety 
you know, anxiety is often what the body does, goes into anxiety with emotion that's strongly denied. Or the system goes into quite a primal dissociated shutdown state, which is another form of protection, which isn't good for our health, you know, limits our behaviour. It's just very contracted way of, of being in the world, really. So that's why I feel there's so much at stake here. We are so much emotional beings, really. Yeah, I just wanted to say that listening to the two of you, my heart just felt so warm and open, even though we're talking about something that's so, well, as you said, Belgia, you know, the cost. Yeah, it's charged and there's there's a lot of, at risk. But it also reminded me of Sangharaksha's teachings on the crucial situation and what we do in the cremation ground. And it was occurring to me that what you were saying at the beginning, Viveka, about what we've been through as a global community in the last few years that we're in that cremation ground really together and that together we need to find that middle way. So there is something about also just this retreat. For me, I feel like it's a calling together. We are the ones who can do this work. If you're in a context where you're even hearing about this retreat, then you must have good enough conditions to be able to do this work. And it's kind of like a call to let's come together, join together in the cremation ground. We might meet some wrathful deities. And can we see that that wrathfulness is not something that need be feared. You know, it's like an energy that can be harnessed towards making the world a better place. One of the things that habitually strikes me as a great sort of privilege of my own work is getting to witness people just being really generous with themselves, like with all of themselves. This conversation started evoking the nature of the invitation to come on this retreat. And just hearing that sort of unfold in terms of why it matters to all of you and what you've got to offer, which seems incredibly generous. You're not just showing up passively to dispense something, but you're bringing yourself because it matters to you. And it's really infectious, actually. It, it's, I always find it really moving that people are prepared to do this. And it's lovely to be able to work in that area, which makes me think we should really end this session after we've said our goodbyes just with a practice. Be a little flavor of the kind of thing that you can expect on this retreat if you decide to take up the invitation, turn towards the work that people have evoked so beautifully. But before that, let's just acknowledge and thank our team for this conversation. Starting with you, Kisla Davy. Oh, this is a, a nice part of your runway into your long retreat in the Spanish mountains. Seems like the right kind of material. Yeah, definitely. I'm sad that I won't be able to come to this particular online retreat, but I will be on a retreat and I'll be sure to check out the recordings actually and the resources after it. So yeah, I hope it goes well and thank you all. Yeah, if you're listening to this in the far future, I guess that's the thing with podcasts, right? <laughs> People could be listening to this in 2035 and we wouldn't know. There will be a, a permanent archive of the retreat where you can go and sort of take part in it still in a particular way. The resources will be there and the Dharma teaching, the video sessions will be there. So you could, in a way, just do this retreat in your own time. So we'll say our goodbyes the way we said our hellos, alphabetically, which seems as good a way as any. So nice to meet you again, Balajit. And thanks just for what you've brought to the conversation. And it's really exciting, actually, to think about people getting a chance to come and spend time with you and your approach to embodied Dharma. Yeah, thank you, Chandra Das. So yeah, I'm, I'm just feeling just a lot of gratitude at the moment, going back right to the Buddha, to the Buddhist tradition, to Sangharaksha, to, to the community of practitioners, you know, who are with me today on this podcast and to BuddhistCenter.com just for the whole context and for the possibility of having a retreat, you know, to explore all these themes in so much more detail. So great. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks to you too, Singashri. Sorry we can't have a virtual pizza while we're getting ready for this retreat. But yeah, it's really lovely to have watched this kind of unfold like a flower of this particular retreat, just from the initial conversation about what, what could we do? What could we do in the online space? And then just hearing it today just evoked as a real, very present 
possibility for anyone who wants to engage with the work. So thanks for helping bring that to life. Yeah, thank you. I feel it's a culmination of a lot of things, actually, because I have individual friendships and connections with everyone on this podcast. And it also feels like I have a sense of a beginning of something as well. You know, in a way, we're starting a particular conversation. This podcast has helped me get even more excited about this retreat. And Viveka, thanks again just for showing up, which is something you've done for so many years, for so many people. And it's always a joy just to have you light up our screens. Also, actually, I think it's one of these things that's quite easy to take for granted, that people are just prepared to put themselves out there and be vulnerable with their own work in these spaces. So thanks for exemplifying that as beautifully as you always do. Yeah, thanks, Chandradasa. I feel like you've been always very welcoming. And yeah, it is something. It is something. Maybe I just appreciating for a moment, you mentioned the word vulnerability, and I, I realize that I'm just feeling that right now. Yeah, I'm glad I'm able to feel that. All right. So given how how many emotions there are, Buddhism says sometimes 84,000, which just means a lot. We want to end with some kind of practice for you, just as a little gift and maybe as a, you know, a way to feel into what the retreat might be like. So let's take a moment to do that. And thanks, everybody, for being in conversation and for those of you listening. Okay. Just for a moment, just inviting your body to be in a place of support and as much comfort as is available in this moment. So just taking a moment to even be curious about what that would be. How is the chair or floor supporting you? Maybe you're lying down. And when we're stressed, we tend to pick away from gravity. We try to lift ourselves away. So just in a moment, how about with the next few out-breaths, just letting gravity have you. So just imagine settling down into gravity and just letting yourself be supported or even imagine what it would be like to be supported. With each exhale, you can notice where the body can soften a little. In the sense of actually being met, you're not just floating alone in the universe, but actually there's the force of gravity holding you. And with the next exhale, maybe letting gravity have a little more of your weight. Just sensing the vastness of the form of the earth. And so our wish for you as you go about your days is that you know, you remember sources of support. And just let the body soften into that as much as you can you know, to receive, to be able to receive. Thank you.